0: Here, uh, I want to encourage you to share the stream and reach out to people who need it. Everybody needs hope and everybody needs Jesus. Amen. So I'm going to read you a big chunk of scripture because we're doing the gospel of John. We're going to finish up. Ready? We're, we're actually going to make it through the first chapter today. So we're going to finish it. All right? I know it's been three weeks in chapter one, but chapter one is like a massive chapter and there's so much to understand out of that chapter. It's important for us to learn our Bibles especially in the modern 21st century. Biblical illiteracy is epic. I mean, I just watched this panel last night with four pastors on this panel, and the guy asks a question. They had a theologian on there, and then there's three other dudes on there. These guys are pastors of churches, right? And they asked the question, what is sin? Simple question. They couldn't even answer it. I told my wife, I was like, are you kidding me? You know, these guys can't even answer what sin is, and then they answer what sanctification is, and you know, what does it mean to be sanctified? Nobody can answer the the basic stuff, right? Basic stuff that maybe not every Christian needs to know, but definitely if you're a pastor, that's something you should actually know. Anyway, my pet peeve, I'm sorry, going off, but biblical illiteracy is really, really high. We have access to more knowledge, but we really don't know our Bibles. And the idea behind it is, is this is the foundation of everything. This is the operating system through which the kingdom moves. This is how God's power moves in your life. This is how God's promises move in your life. This is how everything that is about Jesus moves in your life through a basic and and practical understanding of the scripture. So it's important, it's important. Bible says, desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Timothy, with the book of Timothy, Timothy's a young pastor. He doesn't know what he's doing. He's trying to figure it out. He's a young guy. Nobody likes him. He's too young. Everybody's like, who are you? And Paul gave him instructions, and he told him, Paul, Paul told him, he said, Timothy, just preach the word. Just teach them the scripture whether they like it or whether they don't. He said, be instant, in season or out, be faithful to God's word and let God's word do the work in the lives of the people, teach the word. And so really this is what it's all about. It's about a lot of different things, but at the end of the day, it's about that. So this is a style of teaching that's called expositional. And so expository teaching is when you take chunks of a scripture and you expound upon the scripture and you, you give people understanding into the scripture. There's another type of teaching which is very popular and there's nothing wrong with it, it's called topical, where you take a topic and you teach it in a series, you know, like faith, and you do a series on faith or stuff like that. That's called topical teaching. This is this style of teaching is called expositional. And it's very powerful. So it's let's go. So I'm gonna take a deep breath because I gotta read for you like 30 verses. Now we're not gonna go through every single verse line by line, but but it's just we'll just I'll read it for you. John chapter 1, starting in verse 19. It says, and this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests. And Levites from the city of Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? So basically, John is baptizing people, if you want the background. John the Baptist is baptizing people in the Jordan. The Jewish leaders want to know, who are you and why are you doing this? In verse 20, he confessed, and he did not deny, but he confessed. He's like, look, I'm not the Messiah. And they asked him, well, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, nope. They said, are you the prophet? And he said, "No." Nope. And so they said to him, well, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who have sent us. What do you say about yourself? And John said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Excuse me. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah has said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. That's another story. And then they asked him, then why do you baptize if you were neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? And John answered and said, I baptize with water. That there stands among you one whom you do not know, who comes after me, but he is before me. His sandal strap I am not worthy to untie. And these things took place at Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he who I said after me, the one who comes after me, is actually comes before me because he was before me. He's speaking that Jesus was God, and so Jesus existed long before John ever was. And he says, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness and said, I saw the spirit descend upon him like a dove, and it remained upon him. And I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he to whom you see the Spirit of God descend upon and remain, this is, this, this is the Son of God. And the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and, he, and, uh, and, they, and when they heard him, they turned and began to follow Jesus. They heard him call out Jesus. And, he said, and, the, and Jesus turns to him and says this, what do you seek? So I want you to say that with me. What do I seek? Oh, I see. This is going to be an operative word. And, Jesus, and they said to him, Rabbi or teacher, we wanna know where you're staying. And Jesus said, come and see. So should say, come and see. Come on, come and see. come and see. Right, there you go. So they came and they saw where Jesus was staying and they stayed with him that day and it was about the 10th hour. And one of the two who heard John speak, his name was Andrew. And Andrew was his brother, he had a brother named Peter. And he went and found his brother Simon and he went and found Simon and he said to him, we have found the Messiah. And he brought Peter to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, "'Your name is Simon. "'You are the son of a man named Jonah, "'but you will be called Cephas,' "'which means Peter, or rock. "'The next day Jesus was, went to Galilee, "'and he found Philip, and he said to him, "'Follow me.' "'And now Philip was from Bethesda, and Andrew, "'the same city of Andrew and Peter. "'And Philip went and found Nathaniel. See how the gospel's supposed to be viral? Everybody finds Jesus, and then they go and find someone else to help them find Jesus. And then they go and find someone else and help them find Jesus. This is what's going on here. And they said, and he goes to Nathanael, we have found the one to whom Moses and the law and the prophets have spoken, Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I love that line. Hopefully I'll do a good job with that. And he says, come and see. And uh, so Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and he said, you are an Israelite and in your heart there is no deceit. And Nathanael said, how do you know me? And Jesus said, before Philip came to you, I saw you under a tree. And Nathanael answered and he said, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. And Jesus said, because I said, I saw you under a tree, you believe in me? He said, I say this to you, greater things than these you will see. For I say to you, you will see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the son of man. Okay, so what's going on here, John is baptizing in the river Jordan, okay? So he's baptizing. The Pharisees are like, why are you baptizing? Now, baptizing wasn't new to them. They did something called mikvah, which was ritual cleansing. So baptism was something that the Jews practiced, but they didn't baptize for repentance. John is baptizing for repentance, which means change. He's baptizing them for change. And they're like, well, why are you baptizing for repentance? Only the Messiah can baptize for repentance. Are you the Messiah? And he's like, no. And then they're like, well, then maybe you're Elijah. No, you're not Elijah either, or one of the prophets. And he said, no, I'm neither. And John said, I am not the Messiah. So if you remember the, first part, of the ver- uh, first part of the chapter, Jesus is the word. And so what John is saying, I'm not the word, I'm the voice. I'm the one who speaks on behalf of the word. I'm the one who speaks on behalf of the one. And when they're asking him, are you the Messiah? Are you the anointed one? Are you the king of Israel that's come? They had an expectation for why, they had an expectation for the Messiah. They had what's called a mess, this time there's a messianic fervor going on. The whole nation is running around looking for a Messiah. They're eager to find the Messiah. And so they were in a state of expectation. You say, how did they get into a state of expectation? The Jews were raised with the word. This culture was not trained in mathematics. They were not trained in science. They were not trained in linguistics or any other art. They were trained in the scripture. So from the time you were a child, from the time you could speak, you were taught the word of God. This was their whole culture. Their whole culture was taught this. And what they would do, and you've heard me say it before, is that they, they called them Talmudims, people of the word. They were searching to find, and so if you, your kid's five years old and you were trained, and if you kept, if you were able to uh, demonstrate proficiency in the word of God and in the understanding of the scripture, they kept advancing you. If you couldn't, they would just look at you and go, ah, you know, you got, you're kinda good, but I think fishing's more up your alley you know, or that, that they would send them off into a different, a different occupation. But if you were someone who was proficient in the word of God, you kept on climbing. So Peter's a fisherman. Peter ends up with a fisherman, which means he didn't just, he quite didn't make the theological grade, right? Paul. Was not a fisherman. Paul, if you read the Apostle Paul, he was a student of Gamaliel. Paul was actually on the high council, so Paul was someone who understood the word. But Peter, even being a fisherman, understood the word of God in such detail that when he spoke it, it was like it was very clear. This wasn't foreign to him. And even when you read, if you're familiar with the Book of Acts, where um, Stephen was stoned for for, um, for being a follower of Christ, he gives a whole dissertation on the whole history of his, of the of the Jewish people. These were not a people that were ignorant of the Word of God. This whole culture was saturated with it. They knew the prophets, they knew the writings, they knew the Torah, they knew everything. Their lives revolved around the Word of God. And this is important because this explains why there was such a fervor. They were in a state of expectation. They knew the time of the Messiah was near. Now how did they know that? How in the world would they know that? Well, there's something in the Bible called the precision prophecy. Say it with me. The precision prophecy. In Daniel chapter 9, so let me give you a little bit of background here. So this is going to be one of the most biblically literate churches in Miami. I'm going to tell you that right now. If not the state. You know what I'm saying? My prayer is that when people meet people from Elevate, they're going to go, Where do you come from? (laughs) And so, okay, so the background here is in Daniel chapter 9. There's a prophetic word given, deep prophetic words, one of the most prophetic and apocalyptic and most accurate books in the whole Bible, and they're all accurate, but Daniel's like on point. And what's happening is, is Daniel is a captive in the nation of Babylon. The Israelite people had disobeyed the Lord for over 150 years. The Lord's like, hey, you guys need to listen to me. Nah. Hey, you need to listen to me. Nah. You know, we're doing our own thing, man. We're doing our own thing. We give you Sunday or Saturday. You should be happy with that. So what the Jews were doing is they would worship on, their, on the Sabbath. They would keep the festivals. But the rest of their lives, they lived in any way they wanted. And God was saying, the lifestyle that you're living is opening doors. And captivity is coming to you if you will not listen to me. And God labored with them for 150 years, and they wouldn't listen, and lo and behold, captivity came. The Babylonian army came and picked them up and took them away as captive, and then they went to Babylon, and God gave them a word. He gave them a prophetic word. He said, you'll be in Babylon for 70 years. He told them that. He told them exactly how long they're gonna be there, and there's a reason for that, and I won't get into all that, why why it was 70. But God said, you're gonna be captives to the Babylonians for 70 years, and he said, when that time is done, you'll come back and you'll rebuild the temple and you'll rebuild the city. And he said, so in the meantime, enjoy yourself in the Babylonian culture, build houses, settle down. And you know, this is all in Jeremiah and in, in um, it's in Jeremiah mainly. And also in Daniel, Daniel's a different deal. But he told, he told them to, to just engage themselves in the Jewish culture or in the, in the, in the culture, take their culture and live within that culture because they're not going anywhere. They're gonna be there for 70 years. But at the end of 70 years, the Lord will allow them to come back. What's happening here in Daniel chapter nine, Daniel's been, the, Daniel's been in Babylon since the time he was a boy. Daniel's been there for the whole set. Daniel's like 84 years old right now. He's like in his 80s. And Daniel's like, I've been here 70 years. So the prophecy was 70 years. And so Daniel's saying to himself, I know the time of, my, of our returning is coming soon. So Daniel begins to seek the Lord. And Daniel chapter nine is one of the places, he does it a couple of times, but this is one of them, where he's seeking the Lord and he's asking God, how long, how long, Lord, how long, how close are we, how close are we? And what Daniel ends up doing is he starts repenting. How many knows deliverance comes through repentance? I don't know if you're aware of that. Salvation comes through repentance, deliverance comes through repentance. And Daniel's repenting, not for anything he did. He's repenting for what his ancestors did. He said, our fathers have not listened to you Our fathers have forsaken your prophets. Our fathers have built idolatrous works to you. Our fathers have betrayed you in every sense of the word. And we're captives not because of anything you've done, Lord. We're captives because of our own stupidity, our own arrogance, and our own foolishness. We're in this mess because of ourselves, not because of you. And so Daniel's doing this little ancestral repentance thing, and at the same time, he's asking God, when are are we going back home? And an angel shows up. Angel Gabriel shows up. And Angel Gabriel, how many knows Jesus gives you more than what you're asking for? And yeah. if you know that, we ask him for this and he gives us this. And so Daniel's saying, "When am I going? When are we going home, Lord? When are we going back to Jerusalem? When is this going to happen?" And the angel shows up and he gives him a vision, a twofold vision of redemption. And it has really nothing to do with them going home in 70 years. J- Daniel, he gives Daniel the vision of the coming of the Messiah and he gives them the vision of the coming of the kingdom age. And so he gives them a prophecy that's called the 70 weeks of Daniel. Now I'm not gonna break down the whole 70 week prophecy to you, but in this prophecy, this 70 week prophecy, there's a specific prophecy, that both of them are time dated, but there, there's a specific prophecy that's time dated to the time of the Messiah. And so they knew from the book of Daniel that they could calculate in days, how much time they had until the Messiah comes came. Just like they knew they could calculate in days how many years they were gonna be in Babylon, they knew that God told them. God told them, this is the season and this is what's gonna happen. And so the angel shows up and he gives Daniel a word and he says, 70 weeks have been proclaimed upon your people. And he goes into that. And what these 70 weeks are, a week, what, what, the, what the angel is telling him is one week, or so one week is, is seven years, not seven days. So 70 periods of seven years have been proclaimed upon your people, or 490 years. And he gives him this prophecy, it's 70 weeks, say it with me, 70 weeks. You're gonna I I don't want you fall asleep on me. 70 weeks in two phases. And both of them are time stamped. Both of them are marked. The first 69 weeks relates to the coming of the Messiah and the destruction of the temple. The second 70 weeks, this is what we're all waiting for. I don't know if any of you uh, apocalyptic people out there, or eschatology or end times people out there, you know all about the 70th week of Daniel. We're waiting for the 70th week of Daniel because 69 of these weeks have been fulfilled. One week has not. And he tells Daniel 69 weeks. After 69 weeks, the Messiah, the prince, will be cut off, which will lead to the destruction of the temple. This is what he tells him. So that's the first period that he tells Daniel about. Daniel would have, so the prophetic word was timestamp, and it relates to the rebuilding of Jerusalem. He said 69 weeks from the decree. When the king gives the decree to rebuild Jerusalem, there were two decrees. The first decree was for the Jews to go back and build the temple, but they were not allowed to build the city. They were only allowed to rebuild their temple. That was the first decree. That one didn't count. He said when the king gives the decree to rebuild the city, start the clock, because it will be 69 weeks, 69 periods of seven years, and the Messiah, the Prince, will come and be cut off. This is what he tells him. And so the prophetic decree that was given, Artaxerxes, so you have to, if you understand biblical history, we have, the, we have the Babylonians, so the Jews were in captivity to the Babylonians. The Babylonians seceded power to the Persians and the Medes, and so at this time, the, the Babylonians are no longer in power, about the, 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 the Medo-Persian empire is in power. And there's a king named Artaxerxes Longeminus. And, uh, and the Persians were more sympathetic and empathetic to the Jewish people. And they are just kind of like, you know, hey, you got, and so this is when they, they started to allow them to go home. And on March 14th, 445 BC, Artaxerxes Longeminus gave a decree. It's documented, historical fact. And he told the Jews they could go and build the city. They could repair the streets. They could build the walls. They could fix the city. They already fixed the temple. And you guys, okay, you guys are being cool. You guys are being cool. You're just doing your thing. All right, you're not fighting us. You're not fighting us. Okay, so the Jews are gonna be cool. Okay, you can rebuild your city. And so we set, let them go home and build. They're sent uh, March 14, 445 BC. 360 days was the Jewish calendar. 360 days is the ancient calendar. We live off of a Gregorian Roman calendar that is 365 days. Jesus does not operate off of a Gregorian calendar. He operates off of his own calendar, right? He operates, his time cycle is based upon math. You're gonna do math, Hebrew-wise. It's 360 days, not 365, right? And so 360-day Jewish calendar compensating for leap years brings you from the date of Alonja decree, 173,880 days. And so the Jews, including the people, this would be a topic of discussion. Hey, man, 173,880 days. How close are we? I don't know, but we're close. We're close. And they knew they were in this period of the Messiah. They knew it. They could feel it. Because, of all of, because the prophetic word was there. So there was this messianic fervency that was there. That's why these people were flocking to John, because they knew the time of the Messiah had come, and they saw John as the forerunner of the Messiah. They're like, this guy's the forerunner, and because the Bible prophesies a forerunner to come before the Messiah. And so they said, this guy's the forerunner, the Messiah's gotta be close. On April, <laughs> it gets good, On April the 6th, 32 AD, Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem riding on a colt. This is the one and only time that Jesus allowed himself to be called king. The one and only time. Even though he was king, he did not allow himself to be called king until April the 6th, 32 AD. And he came into Jerusalem riding on a colt to fulfill the prophecy of Zechariah. Behold, your prince comes lowly and riding on a colt. Jesus came in riding on a colt and the people said, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Save now, son of David. Save now. The Pharisees go, do you know what they're saying? Right? So in case we don't know what they're saying, the Pharisees are going to interpret what they're saying for us. They're calling you king. They're calling you Messiah. And Jesus said, unless they speak, the rocks will cry out. So from March 14, 445 B.C. to April 6, 32 A.D. is exactly 173,880 days to the day. Do you understand that? From the decree of Artaxerxes until Jesus entered the temple, until he entered the city, riding on the, the, the cult, is exactly 173,880 days, a precise fulfillment of 69 weeks. If you don't think Jesus is gonna fulfill his word, you don't know him. If you don't think he's gonna fulfill it on point, you don't know him. You don't know him to the day. Why wouldn't he allow himself to be called king? Because he knew, Jesus knew the prophecy. It's like, I can't be called king yet. But as soon as he entered Jerusalem, he's king. Because that was when he was gonna be cut off. He would be crucified and within 30 years the temple would be destroyed. Exactly as the Bible says. And so they knew the time of the Messiah was come. And so there are all these people were in this fervor, they're in this frenzy, they're like, what do we do? Messiah's coming, why is he coming? You know, it's all this stuff's happening. So they're asking him, why are you baptizing? It's interesting not why John was baptizing, but where John was baptizing. John was baptizing on the River Jordan at the crossing point of the Exodus. So when the Jews came out of Egypt, they went into the wilderness. They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. An entire generation died. And you know why the entire say, say this? An entire generation died outside of the promises because they wouldn't listen to the Lord. Uh-huh. They they were baptized, brought out by blood. They went through the water. They were God's people, but they couldn't go into the promises that God had for them because they wouldn't listen. And so they died in the wilderness. And God had to raise up a whole other generation. And he said, are you gonna listen? They're like, we're gonna listen. I saw grandma, grandpa, mom, and dad drop dead in the dirt, man, because they wouldn't listen. I'm listening, I'm listening. I don't know what Jesus has for me, but it's gotta be better than dropping dead in the dirt. So I wanna go, I'm going where you're going. Like, whatever you tell me to, Jesus, that's, that's what happened in the second generation. And so Joshua leads them to a spot on the Jordan River across from Jericho, and he crosses the Jordan River, and they go into the Promised Land and begin to take the cities in the Promised Land. Like God said, there was a crossing point at the Jordan. This is where John is baptizing. He's baptizing at the place where the children of Israel crossed the Jordan. Why? It's a prophetic statement. Your time of promise has come. The time of crossing over, the time of the fulfillment of all that has been promised to you has come. It's now, it's right now. And so the Pharisees, they would have known this. They're like, who's this guy? Why is he back? It's interesting that the, the, the senior leaders of the Pharisees didn't go themselves. They sent their underlings. They said, give us an answer so that we may answer the ones who sent them. I'm sorry, this is a pretty significant event and you are a spiritual leader. Don't you think you should go yourself and try to figure out what's going on here? But they were so indifferent. They were so indifferent. The same group of people were indifferent when Jesus was born. They wouldn't travel six miles to Bethlehem to see the one who was born king. Six miles. Right? I love it, pointed out. Every Christmas, I pointed out. The wise men traveled for months, but the religiously correct couldn't travel six miles. It was too inconvenient for them. It didn't, you know, I'm going to have to lose sleep. Ugh, you mean I got to get out of bed to honor Jesus? Ugh, no. You know, no. They were so secure and so self-focused that they couldn't inconvenience themselves at all, at all. And so they just obligatory sent their underlings to go and find out who's this upstart, who's this hippie down in the Jordan wearing camel's hair, eating organic food, right? Who's this dude and why is he baptizing people? And so they asked him, they said, are you baptizing? And he said, why are you baptizing? They said, are you Elijah? And he said, no, why Elijah? Because Elijah's prophesied to come before the Lord. They said, are you, are you the prophet? The prophet that they're speaking of is Jeremiah. So the Jews believed that Elijah's going to come, which I, the Bible says Elijah's gonna come, but they believed also that Jeremiah was gonna come and that Jeremiah was gonna restore the Ark of the Covenant because the Jews at this point don't have the Ark of the Covenant. Why? because during the, the days of the King Manasseh, King Manasseh was an ultra-pagan, and he set up all these pagan deities in the temple, even into the holy place, and so Jeremiah went to Manasseh and said, look, dude, if you're gonna party like a rock star and you're gonna just give, you know, give yourself to the gods of the culture, can I at least remove the Ark of the Lord you know, from this place? And so Manasseh gave Jeremiah permission to remove the Ark of the Lord, and Jeremiah removed the Ark of the Lord. Jews haven't had it since then. And so they believe that Elijah is going to come and be the forerunner, and the Messiah will come. And then they also believe that uh, uh, that Jeremiah is going to come and restore the Ark of the Covenant. The Bible doesn't say that Jeremiah will restore the Ark, but it does say that Jeremiah will come. So they have this belief. That's why they ask them. That's when Jesus says, "Who do men say that I am?" If you guys are familiar with that story, Peter, when you're downtown washing your camel, what's the words on the street, right? What are people talking about at the water cooler? What are they saying, you know? Who, who are people saying I am? And they said, some say you're Jeremiah. Some say you're Elijah or another one of the prophets. They mentioned Elijah and Jeremiah. So John is baptizing for repentance, which is something that the Bible says only the Messiah will do. This is Ezekiel. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean, right? And so they knew that the baptism for Purification, they could do. They did ritual cleansing, but they knew that the baptism of repentance was something only the Messiah could do. And so this guy's baptizing for repentance. You're not supposed to be doing that. Are you the Messiah? And he's like, no, I'm not the Messiah. Then why are you doing what you're doing? When you give your life to Jesus, he does baptize you. You, are received, you receive the clean water of the Holy Spirit. When the Bible says he speaks clean water on you, he cleanses you, right? He, anybody with me? Right, He cleanses you. And the washing that Jesus does is not outward, it's inward. And that's really the cleansing that we need, isn't it? It's, all, it's the sin that's in us that we can't wash off of us. No matter how hard we scrub, no matter how many good works we do, or how many good deeds we do, we can't get rid of it. But when we receive Jesus, we're cleansed, and we're acceptable in his presence. That doesn't mean everything in your life becomes perfect. This cleansing was for acceptance, you understand? Sin keeps us from the Lord. And so the Lord deals with our sin. He gives his life to us, empowers himself to cleanse you. And so when you give your life to Christ, he cleanses you and now makes you acceptable in his presence. And then he begins to build his life out within you. This is the idea. So uh, so baptism is an outward commitment of loyalty. John is cleaning, uh, John is baptizing, preparing the people for this commitment that's to come. Preparing the way, if you will. The next day John points out Jesus, right? Behold the Lamb of God. The Bible tells us in the book of Matthew that Jesus was baptized. Anybody know that story? Right, if you've ever heard that, Jesus went to the Jordan and was baptized. Question always emerges, is if Jesus is God come in the flesh, and Jesus is without sin, then why was he baptized? Why was he baptized? To set an example. Who said that, Claudia? Over here, to set an example. Gold star to rose. So uh, to set an example. He's the divine prototype of the new creation. He said, permit it to be so to fulfill all righteousness. And so he did it on purpose, not because he needed it, but because he was preparing a pathway for us And the Bible says that the heavens opened and the Spirit came down upon him like a dove. And you heard the voice of the Father, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. So there's your Trinity. You have the Father speaking, the Holy Spirit coming down and the Son standing in the water. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all in one. Here's another cool thing. Why a dove? Isn't that interesting? Why a dove? Why not a ram? Why didn't a lion come charging out of the woods and just jump into Jesus? You know what I'm saying? He's the lion of the tribe of Judah, woo, right? Why not an eagle, the symbol of the king? I saw an eagle come down and land upon him. Why a dove? The dove is the offering of the poor. Jesus identifies with you always, 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 always. He came not to serve himself, he came to serve you. He said, I'm the offering of the lowly. If, if, if the eagle only the kings can offer, If that's not my symbol. I'm an offering that everybody can accept. I'm the offering that the, even the, the most impoverished of people can accept. I'm the offering of the poor. The dove was the offering of the poor. If the, it, in Jewish culture, you were required to bring an offering before you came to the Lord. You, just, you were not allowed to show up before God empty-handed. You were not allowed. You're not allowed. You say, that doesn't seem right. Because the principle is that honor creates access. And so even the most lowly of the people could not come. They don't have any money, go get a pigeon. Bring me a pigeon, right? Bring me something. Don't you come before me empty-handed, I'm a king. And when you honor me, you'll create access to me. If you will not honor me, you will not create access to me. God doesn't work on selfish standards. His kingdom doesn't flow in our lives based upon selfish standards. His kingdom flows in our life based upon honor. All that we are for all that he is. All of me unto you that all of you may flow unto me. This is the standard. And so they were not allowed to come empty handed. They had to go buy a pigeon, which is a dove. And so Jesus said, I'm the lowly offering. Everybody can come to me. I'm the one who can come and anybody can accept me. I'm not the offering of kings. You don't have to be high and mighty to receive me. I give my life away for all. So you think you're too broken to come to Jesus? You don't know who you are? You think you're too shot out to come to Jesus? Who told you that? (laughs) It's not the nobles he called, Christian. It's the lowly he called. It's not the ones who had it all together. It's the broken that he called. The well have no need of a physician, he said. All right? The religiously elite were offended because Jesus lowered himself. He lowered himself. He lowered himself to brokenness, He lowered himself to pain. It's not just physical poverty, it's emotional poverty. It's not just emotional poverty, it's spiritual poverty. Not just spiritual poverty, but intellectual poverty. Jesus lowered himself to that standard. It wasn't economics. There are plenty of rich people in that culture that were spiritually broke. They did all the right things. The rich young ruler is spiritually broke. What must I do to inherit the kingdom? He's got everything he could possibly want. He said, I've kept the law from the beginning. And Jesus is like, oh, really? You've kept the law? Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and follow me. (gasps) Was Jesus saying? You cannot fulfill the law because money is your idol. You're breaking the second commandment by by, by the idolatry of your money. Jesus wasn't telling him to sell everything. What Jesus was pointing out to him is that he's not keeping the law. That's what he was saying. And he was hoping that that guy would get it, that he had an idol within his heart, so giving away all of his goods didn't save him, but realizing that he can't save himself would save him. So that was the context, that's the story. And so the next day, Jesus points out John, or John points out Jesus, Jesus points out John. John points out Jesus, and John had been group, gathering a group of disciples, and so when Jesus point, John points out Jesus, a bunch of these disciples get up and follow him. One of them is a guy named Andrew, and Jesus, they're following him, And Jesus looks at those who say with me, Jesus looks at those who follows him and he wants to know, why are you following me? What do you seek? This is an operative question that every Christian needs to answer. What do you seek? Why do you follow the Lord? Why? It's not not like an antagonistic question. He wants to know, what's the motive of your heart? What do you seek from me? What do you want from me? What's the longing and the desire of your heart? What is it that you want? And they were like, basically, we wanna be near you. We wanna know where you're at. They wanted him. They're like, we just wanna be with you. And then Jesus says, come and see. It's always invitational. What do you want? Hope, come and see, right? Salvation, come and see. A new life, come and see. It's always through experiential encounter with the Lord. Always. It's not just through the logos, it's through the rhema. It's important to understand that. I just had this debate yesterday with a guy and he was talking about uh, experience. (laughs) And he was talking about healing. And I'm like, don't go there, don't go there. This is not where you want to go, you should stay in your lane. And he went there and I said, okay. And he's talking about experience and he says how experience doesn't produce revival. And I'm like, are you crazy? I'm like the woman at the well, It was a prophetic encounter, and the whole city comes to Jesus through an encounter, through experience. I'm like the second chapter of Acts, the Holy Spirit comes down in experience. There's a massive revival in Jerusalem, and the church is born. Like, where are you getting this? You know, where do you get that experience doesn't produce revival? Experience is everything. Knowing is not enough. When you know... You know, but when you experience it, if you know that stove's hot, well, I know that stove's hot, but if you've ever put your hand on a hot stove, now you really know. <laughs> it's like when you really know Jesus is who he is, when you really experience him, there's not, the, then, then the, the, the mental knowledge or the intellectual knowledge is almost secondary to the experience. The experience overpowers it because it's more powerful than intellectual knowledge. This guy was saying all that stuff, and then. He said a few things on healing, which I was like, no way, you're crazy. You're crazy. It's like, well, we believe that G- greater works, Jesus' Jesus's desire with greater works, and I've heard this argument so many times, that greater works is that the building of hospitals and the collective work of the body of Christ over the centuries is what Jesus meant when he meant greater works. I said he didn't mean that. It's not what he said. He didn't say build hospitals, build orphanages. feed. He didn't say that. He said, heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out devils and cleanse lepers. And so, we were talking about power. You know, the discussion was on power and heal the sick. And I said, Your theology is based on your lack of experience. I said, Just like you just said, you can't build theology based off experience. I said, Neither can you build it on your lack of experience. I said, You have no experience with the Holy Spirit. I said, So you've no, you don't understand his healing power. You have no experience with this. You know conceptually, but you've never experienced it. So, why do you speak from your lack of experience when the Bible completely says this, this is true? Amen. So we see healing all the time, all the time, all the time, all the time. Yeah. I'm hopefully going to, you know, I don't want to say it, but I will. But, well, well ah, no, not going to go there. Stay on the track. Say it. Don't encourage me. <laughs> My wife's like, all they got to do is say it, is tell you to say it, Kevin, and you say it. And I go, I know it's so bad. It's so bad. <laughs> Believe in God, there's a couple people within our midst that there's going to be some dramatic testimonies. And they believe it. Serious issues, serious issues. Confounding the doctors that they can't solve. But we've been working with them. How many knows it's called the working of miracles? Huh? It's the working of miracles. That's what the Bible says. Sometimes it's the laying on of hands and shazam, there it is. Other times it's the working of miracles. It's finding the key. It's understanding what's going on here. What's in the way? What needs to get out of the way? What's missing? What needs to be put in place? I was just praying for a woman in Texas um, who had a punctured lung. I was out of town on vacation. And uh, <laughs> it wasn't really a vacation, but no, it was good. It was good. So they call me and she's in a hospital. She can't, the, the lung won't heal. It's been four days and the lung won't heal. They can't figure out why the lung won't heal because the doctors punctured her lung, right? They don't know, but they'll practice on you. So while they were doing surgery, they punctured her lung, and the, and the lung wasn't healing, they couldn't figure out why. And so they're calling, the, the family's calling me and asking me, and of course my beloved wife is like, you need to help them. You need to help them. I'm like, okay. If, if, if I don't volunteer myself, just go and empathize with Sherry, and she'll always volunteer me. It's not me. Look, we try to teach this to the church. So. I just happen to have more experience in this than most people around here, but I'm trying to impart it. And so anyway, I'm working with her and going back and forth with her, and, just, and, and the next day her lung healed. Yeah. The next day her lung closed. They kept her for two more days, as they always do, to try to make sure, and she's asking me. And I, I heard the Lord saying she's going to go home on Tuesday, she's going to go home on Tuesday, which was like three days. from. And she, she wanted out of the hospital like yesterday, because she'd been there for all this time. And the, you know, anybody like staying in a hospital? right? You went out of there as quick as possible. In and out, man. It, I don't want to go there at all, but nonetheless, so her lung healed, and so they kept her, and then her husband called me a couple of days later, and he just said, uh, he just said, uh, you know, I've never experienced anything like that, and I was like, like what? And I was trying to hear what he was saying, and he's like, he's like, when you were praying for her, he's like, it was like you were trying to find the key to her healing, and I'm like, that's exactly what I was trying to do, You know, it's not just, well, bam, you know, sometimes it is. Listen, if we don't lay hands on people, if we lay hands on people and we cannot manifest what God has placed in our lives, there's a reason. Number one reason is you don't know what you're doing, but that's okay. Do not let that dissuade you, right? You don't know what you're doing. Number two, number two, you don't know what's going on. There's probably something going on here that's beyond. Listen, we're endowed with power. These hands shall, these signs shall follow. Did he stutter? Did he say these signs might follow? He said these will. This will be your manifestation. This will come forth from your life. It will, right? And, or the third reason, what is the third reason? So we have, we don't know what we're doing. We have, we don't understand the, the circumstance or the situation. And I can't remember the third one. But anyway, there's another reason why. Oh, you haven't manifested that level of power before. There are things, and somebody, there are things that happen with healing in particular when you lay hands and you're some, if you understand how this, this works, you have act when you lay hands? Like we see people with lungs healed all the time. Why? Because we've entered into that world. We see it. There are other places where I can't move the rock no matter how hard I push. And why is that? Because I can move a thousand pound boulder, but I have not developed myself to move a ten thousand pound boulder. Just give me time. Most Christians can't move a pebble because they've never exercised their faith to do anything, to do anything. So sometimes it's an issue of understanding. I was just talking with a person the other day and he was asking me about two things going on and he asked me about a person, this is called the agony of defeat. So we'll just have a brief healing conversation here. There's the thrill of victory and there's the agony of defeat. You know, there's a person that we prayed for that didn't make it. You're like, well, Jesus didn't want to heal him. No, Jesus wanted to heal him. 100%, how do you know? Who did he ever say no to? Can you point that out to me? Can you point out to me one person that Jesus ever said no to? So where do you get that theology that Jesus doesn't wanna heal? He always wants to heal. It's that we don't know what we're doing. We are the ones endowed with the power. We are called to manifest the power. We don't know what we're doing. Jesus tells his people, heal the sick. He's not asking, he commands you. And the question then becomes, well, how do we do that? Isn't that the question? Now we begin to enter into partnership with the Holy Spirit, we begin to grow in the partnership with the Holy Spirit, and we begin to allow the Holy Spirit who teaches us and leads us into all truth and reveals all things and draws our inheritance into our life, and through this context of being around people who are more experienced, and then the second context is being in communion with the Holy Spirit, we begin to develop and manifest that power. And I was explaining to that person, what I I didn't know then, I know now, right? And it, and it also requires a person willing to be open. And he asked me, Why do you think that person died? I said, Look, I tried to work with him. The, the dude was not open at all. Not open. So how many know people trust in doctors way more than they trust in Jesus? Or they just do. It's how we're trained, right? Jesus doesn't have a problem with doctors, he has a problem being second. He's the great physician. I could tell you stories off that. The church is weak and anemic in this area, but just because we're weak and anemic, it doesn't mean that God's power is not real. Just because we're weak and anemic, it doesn't mean the promise is not true. The promise is true. The promise is true. Come on, can I get a witness, Charmaine? Right? The promise is true. Is true. So we ask him, what do you seek? What's your motive? Why are you coming, Why are you coming to me? The, the kingdom is experiential. What do you want from him? I want a new life, Lord, boom, come and see. I want a new beginning, Lord, boom, come and see. Come after me, follow with me, and let me show you. Come with me, commune with me, come where I am. Hmm? Not Jesus, come where I am, no, you come where I am. actually the scripture says draw near to me and I will draw near to you. We think it's Lord, draw near to me. No, you draw near to him and he draws near to you. This is how it works, it works that way. And so God, what do you seek? What is it that you want? Jesus says, come and see, it's experiential. And he calls a guy named Andrew. Andrew's one of the first dudes that he calls. Andrew had a brother named Peter, didn't he, right? Anybody know that story? So when you, when you think about Andrew and Peter, who do you hear mostly? Who do you hear more about? Peter. Right. Peter was the big mouth, Peter was the dominant personality, right? You never knew ever, Peter was surrounded by a cloud of dust. Everywhere Peter went, it was dust everywhere. Action, action. I have a vivid image of Peter because Peter was a fisherman. He knew his Bible, but he was also rough and tumbly. I always imagine Peter missing a few teeth because he'd been in one too many bar fights. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. He had a a sword. He walked around with a sword. He didn't like kids. He's always pushing the kids away. Get these kids out of here, man. You know what I'm saying? That's Peter. He's the one saying everybody's pushing in on Jesus. He's like, Lord, the whole crowd is touching you. Peter's the guy going, get out of the way. Get out of the way. He's the guy with the sword. He's the guy that has, still carries a problem with profanity. Do you know? Oh, <gasps> no. He cussed. He denied Jesus. The Bible says he cussed. I don't blankety-blank know the man. And then he went away and wept bitterly. And he's like, why did I say that? Oh my gosh. Not only did I deny Jesus, I dropped three F-bombs in the process. Is that too close to home for some of you? (laughs) Too close, right? Too tasty, as my grandson says. Too tasty, grampy, too tasty. Is that too tasty? I know none of you are like that. You've all transcended and risen above. All all manner of such fleshly behavior. (laughs) But Andrew was one of the most effective of all the disciples. Andrew gets Jesus to say, come and see. And Jesus is like, Andrew's like, come and see. He's like, I can do that. And so he goes and gets Peter and goes, come and see. And so he brings his brother and he tells him to come and see. Then Andrew worked in a fishing business with Peter and he had two other guys that worked with him, James and John. And so Andrew brings two of his working buddies. He's in the marketplace among the work. He's like, dude, you guys got to come and see. You got to come and see. I'm like, well, I guess we got to come and see. This guy's never going to stop inviting us to church. So, uh, I guess we're gonna go to church, you know. And as long as we're out for the dolphin game, I guess we could go with you, dude, all right. Just, you're gonna stop asking us if we go? Yeah, man, okay, we'll go. So Andrew was always the guy going, come and see, come and see, come and see. He went into, he went into, uh, uh, he followed the Roman trail. He was, the, he was known in Scotland and in Ireland, and he was also known, and he was killed in Armenia, near Armenia, and he pushed all the way into the Russian provinces. And so uh, St. Andrew's cross, the Romans didn't crucify him. They tied him on a cross, and they hoped that the wild beasts would eat him. They didn't want him to die. They wanted to watch him get eaten. (laughs) Like, hey, man, we're going to camp out here for about three days. We're going to watch the dogs eat you. These guys were crazy. These Romans, if you watch how they kill people, they're like psychos, man. They're like Jeffrey Dahmer. They're like eating, eating lentils. Ooh, ah. Did you see that, man? I mean, these guys were crazy. So they tied Andrew to a cross, the X, right? Scotland, St. Andrew's Cross. St. Andrew's in Scotland. Also, you see it all the way into East, a lot of places in Eastern Europe. And he gave his life away. And he brought the gospel and he brought the kingdom. And he chose more of the northern roads. He's very effective. Very effective. And so Andrew brings his brother, then he brings his co-workers. Say it with me. I don't have to be an evangelist to bring someone. Right? We're called to invite. This is really what we're all called to do. Every single Christian is called to invite. You may not be able to give the four spiritual laws. You may not be able to give the evangelism explosion speech that if you die tonight, do you know where you're going? You may not be able to do any of that, but you all, every single one of you can say, come and see. You can invite someone to church. You can invite them to an event. You can invite them to a holiday. You can invite them somewhere, Christmas and Easter golden times mother's day golden times anytime brokenness in the person's life you need to come to church with me and let some people pray for you you need to come to church with me and let And hear something encouraging that we're all called to do that every one of us our obligation isn't so much to be billy graham and preach in stadiums but our obligation is to our oikos or our centers of influence and Andrew's the model for that Andrew's the guy that shows us that this is what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to invite our coworkers. We're supposed to invite our relatives. This is how the game is played. Your obligation isn't to get them saved. Your obligation is to bring them into a position where they can hear the gospel. You're not, the burden is not for you to get them saved. You're just inviting them. Some of you, you feel like you feel compelled to something different. That's fine. But the majority of Christians, if we're honest, the majority of Christians, this is where we're at. And there's no expectation beyond that upon you. If you feel compelled, and you feel you have a calling, and you feel like, and you have a burning to reach people who are lost, that's a different thing. Doesn't mean you're better. It just means different. But the group, the collectiveness of us all, we're all commanded to bring someone. All of us. It's the way it is. And so he goes, and they find Nathaniel, and they go, and they say, Nathaniel, come on, man. We've heard. We found the one that Moses and the laws talked about. We. What he's saying is, we have found the one that we have heard of all of our lives. All of our lives, we've heard about this. We found the one. Nathaniel's kind of like, really? And he's like, yeah, he's Jesus of Nazareth. He's the son of Joseph. And then Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, why is Nathaniel hating on Nazareth, right? Why is he hating on Nazareth? Well, Nazareth at this time, let's just say it's a redneck town. Can we say that? Is that okay, right? They didn't cut their grass. They burned it. So it's kind of like a town like that. You You know what I'm talking about? All the rednecks in the room, you understand the joke I'm telling, right? It's kind of the joke, it's kind of the town where everybody's changing the oil in their front yard, right? Is that that kind of town? So it was a town where nothing really good came out of it, and the, the town had become a wasteland because it had been trampled on so many times by so many different people. And so there's like, can anything good come out of Nazareth? The Messiah's coming out of Nazareth? Are you serious? Really? Actually, in the book of Matthew it says that he would be he, that it would be fulfilled when Jesus came out of nazareth that it would be fulfilled that he would because he was to be called a nazarene so skeptics of the bible will say there is no prophetic there's no prophecy that says that Jesus was to come out of nazareth everybody say this with me true he wasn't to come out of nazareth but he was to be called a nazarene and the Greek, and the hebrew word is the word Nazar which is a total, it's a cryptic, it's very cryptic. There's a prophetic dilemma. The word Nazare means branch. So here you have the the Nazarites, you have the Nazarites who were, they would take a Nazarite vow where they wouldn't cut their hair, they wouldn't drink wine, they wouldn't do all these things for a period of time. They would take a vow for purification. Those were Nazarites. Nowhere does it say that Jesus took the Nazarite vow. Doesn't say that. So he wasn't a Nazarite by vow. Then you have the city of Nazareth. So if you came from Nazareth, you'd be a Nazarene. That's not, that doesn't qualify either, right? Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. He lived in Nazare, Nazareth, but the word Nazare is the operative word. Nazare means branch, it's prophetic, okay? So you have the book of Zechariah, you have the book of Isaiah, and you have the book of Jeremiah all talking about this person called the branch. He will, and so this person called the branch says he's gonna be a sign, he's gonna build the temple, He's going to bring justice, he's going to bring righteousness. So my servant, the branch, will come forth. My servant, the branch, will be a sign. My servant, the branch, will bring justice. My servant, the branch, this is what he's going to do. Well, why is he called a branch? Why, Why in the world, why would he get the word branch from? Well, the real meaning, and then hopefully I'll explain this well enough, is in Isaiah 11. It says, there shall come a branch from the root of Jesse, and a branch, Nazar, will grow out of these roots, and this branch, Nazar, the spirit of the Lord, will rest upon him, and then it goes on to verse 10, and it says, and he will be assigned to all the nations, and the Gentiles will seek him. What's happening here is long before this ever happened, Isaiah's prophesying something that hadn't happened. Jeremiah's prophesying something that happened, hadn't happened, and Zechariah's prophesying something that hadn't happened. The throne of Israel was to be seceded to the line of David. So all of David's, you had to be a direct descendant of David in order to sit upon the throne of Israel. At this time, well, during the time of Isaiah and Jeremiah, there was still a king on the throne. At the time that Jesus was going to come, the line of the kings had been destroyed. When they went into captivity in Babylon, the line of the kings was cut down, right? You have Jehoiakin and Jehoi, Jehoiachin and Shin. They're two different dudes, but both of these guys were the last kings of Israel. And they were allowed to be there. They, they, they kept fighting against Babylon until finally Babylon came and destroyed them. And one of those kings, he had two prophets coming to him. I love to tell this story, even though I'm not prepared to tell it. I'll get most of it right. Just say it. He's going to get most of it right. Come on, all right. There we go. So there's one of these kings. I can't remember his. Jeho- I think it's Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim's on the throne, and he and Babylon now has taken. This is before. So okay, if you want to, so that you guys want to know the history, are you with me? Okay. I get caught up in this sometimes. So you got to bear with me. Uh, so what happened? Babylon came. So we're flashing back, right, back to where Daniel was. Babylon came. They took half the city. They went home. They told the Jews, "You can stay in the land as long as you're cool." you don't wanna play cool, then we're gonna kill all you and we're gonna destroy the city and we're gonna take all y'all away, right? And so they were like, okay, dude, we'll do it. And so Jehoiakim was still a king, he was still of the line of David, and he decided he didn't wanna be under Babylon. And so they started fighting the Babylonians and so Nebuchadnezzar came back, destroyed the city, took took the rest of them captive, the ones that survived, and took them all to Babylon. But during this time, Jehoiakim wouldn't listen. And he had two prophets coming to him. One of them I know was Ezekiel. I think the other was Jeremiah or Isaiah. And one of them was coming to him and saying, if you don't listen, you will be taken in chains to Babylon. And then it was another one of the Lord's prophets that said, if you don't listen, you will, ne- you will never see Babylon. And so the king's laughing because he's mocking God. He's like, you guys can't even get your story right. You're saying I'm going in chains to change the Babylon and you're saying I'm never gonna see Babylon. Well, what happened when Nebuchadnezzar breached the gates? He went into the palace, and he brought Jehoiakim out, clapped him in chains, brought his entire family in front of him, murdered his whole family, took two hot irons, and put his eyes out and dragged him to Babylon. So which prophecy was true? Both. (laughs) He was taken in chains to Babylon, but he never saw it. Never saw it. So this time, Jehoiakim was the last of the kings. The tree of the kings had been cut down. There was nothing left of the line of the kings except a root. And so what the prophets are saying, a Nazar, a branch, will come up from this root. And this Nazar, oh, I feel the glory. <laughs> this Nazar will be an ensign, a sign, a banner to all the nations. And the Gentiles will seek him. And this is why Jesus is called a Nazarene, not because he came from the city of Nazareth, not because he took a Nazarite vow, because he, because he is the prophesied Nazare, you understand? Everything he's doing is fulfilling the word of God, he's fulfilling the prophecy. Last point, everybody say last point. <laughs> I was asked to leave a little bit of time for um, you guys to do the uh, life group thing. And Jesus said, Jesus calls Nathaniel. And he says, Nathaniel, I saw you under a tree. One of the things Jesus does, talk about encounter. So as I was talking to this guy, and he's telling me that experience doesn't matter, I'm like, well, the first thing Jesus does, he introduces himself to Peter with a prophetic word. Your name's Simon, but you're really Peter. He calls out his prophetic identity. How many knows Peter would be changed, right? This dude just called me a rock. What? You know? Nathaniel comes to him, and he calls out Nathaniel's heart. You have no deceit in your heart. You have purity in your heart, right? Honor creates access. You see how the Lord honors them and immediately they're gonna, he's gonna access them because he honored them. Same way that when we honor the Lord, it creates access to him is the same way God, when you receive God's honor, it creates greater access to you. And so then the second thing he does is he tells Nathaniel, you are without deceit. And I know you, Nathaniel. I saw you under a tree. He gives him again a prophetic encounter. Nathaniel's like, I've never had a prophetic word in all my life. You must be the Messiah. <laughs> and, Jesus, and Jesus says to him, if you think that's all, you think that's something, stick around. This should be our lives, Christian. This should be our lives. The kingdom is not in the sweet by and by. The kingdom's also in the rotten here and now. We should see miracles. We should see deliverance. We should see power. We should see signs. We should see wonders. You should experience them. You should see God deliver you from enemies that are too great for you. You should see God bring healing and restoration into homes. You should see that. Just because because it's dark doesn't mean it can't be light. Hmm? Sorrow endures for the night. Say it with me. But joy comes in the morning. That's right. Bible says darkness covers the earth and deep darkness covers the people. But arise, shine, for the glory of the Lord is upon you. It right? doesn't matter the darkness within the culture. The glory is on us. We rise above, not beneath. We're not part of this world, we're part of His world. Our inheritance doesn't come from this world. Our inheritance may come through this world, but our inheritance comes from Him. Our favor comes from Him. We should see these things. We shouldn't be just a bunch of people sitting around in God's waiting room, waiting for Jesus to come back, or waiting to die and just holding on till Jesus comes. We should be experiencing this kingdom. We should be fighting to experience this kingdom. The kingdom of heaven suffers violence. The violent take it by force. The devil violently opposes you in what is yours. And you must meet that with equal or, for, or more opposition. We have a force multiplier called the Holy Spirit, right? We have to meet the determination that is against us with equal determination, knowing who and what we are and knowing what belongs to us. This is how it works. This is not your inheritance. Why is this happening? This is not my inheritance. Why is this occurring? This is not who I am. This is not what I am. This is not the promise over my life. We need to stand up and rise against it. What the devil does is he overwhelms you and then he discourages you. You see, what, say this with me. The devil plays the game in the circumstance and in the emotion, but our fight, come on, is not in the circumstance nor in the emotion. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They are mighty through God, spiritual. You understand? Our fight is not in the emotional. So the devil will create the circumstance and then reinforce it with emotion. It's all over. And then you'll start feeling, it's all over. That's not your fight. You have to subdue your emotions and fight from the place of truth. You have to fight from the place of love and acceptance and identity. Your father's for you. You're sons and daughters of the highest. You're not common. You're above only and not beneath. Who told you that? Who told you that? Who, who, who told you? People say, it's going, I'm going under. I'm like, did Jesus tell you that? They're like, no. And I go, well, then why are you believing it? Did Jesus say you're going over? I always ask him, Holy Spirit, what will become of me? And they'll, see, they'll hear a word, victory. I'm like, see, did Jesus tell you defeat? I had a guy and he's like, the, he's going to the big barbecue in the sky getting ready to go to the big barbecue in the sky. I go, did Jesus tell you going to the big barbecue in the sky? I said, no. I said, ask him, Lord, ask him, Holy Spirit, what's your will for me in this situation? He says, Holy Spirit, what's your word for me in this situation? I said, first word. He said he heard the word healing. I'm like, did Jesus say, get get the barbecue sauce because you're coming to the barbecue in the sky? Did Jesus say, bring me a slab of ribs because you're coming to the big barbecue in the sky? Is that what he said? He didn't say that at all. He said, my will for you is healing. What's your will? God's will is healing. What's your will? We have to partner with his will, not with the circumstance. We have to partner with his will and not with our feelings. Not with our feelings. And so Jesus tells him, he said, if you're impressed by that, you'll see the heavens open. See, what Christians don't realize is that Jesus brought open heavens with him. We use that word very loosely. And see, what what does that mean? It means access, access. When man fell, the two worlds became separated. Heaven and earth became separated. When Christ came, he gives us access to a world that we could not access before. The veil has been torn, the heavens have been opened, and you of all people in the earth have access to the realm of the Spirit. Of all people. There is no other person on the earth that does it, only those in Christ, you have access to the Holy Spirit. That is the very thing that the devil works to oppress and suppress within the church, is the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. He's either trying to corrupt it through some sort of mania or he's trying to completely deny it and suppress it into non-existence. It's the very thing. Say it with me. The devil is not opposing Jesus. How do you know? Because he's not anti-Jesus. The Bible doesn't say the devil is anti-Jesus. He's anti-Christ. And if you know what Christ means, Christ means the anointing. Christ means the presence and the power. He's not opposing Jesus. You can see it within the culture. Nobody's opposing Jesus. CNN doesn't oppose Jesus. Jesus, well, they don't have a problem with Jesus. Oh, but they have a problem with presence and power. They have a problem with anointing. They have a problem with anointing. includes salvation, the anointed power to save. They have a problem with that. The devil's not opposing Jesus per se, nor is he opposing Jesus in your life. He's opposing the kingdom power within your life. That's what he's opposing—the anointing. He's opposing the access to the kingdom, the mind of Christ. He's opposing all of the things that are yours. That's what he's coming against, and you have to be willing to understand that what belongs to you, and not be willing to surrender and submit yourself to circumstances. Right? Anyway, <laughs> Jesus brought open heavens. What does this mean? I'm going to close right here. Say it with me: I am not alone. That's what it means. You're not alone. You have access. Means I say it with me, I don't have to be empty. If I'm empty, come on, it's because I want to be. You know how many times I would lament, oh God, oh God, oh God. He's like, Kevin, you have a bucket, you have a well and you have a bucket. Drop the bucket. And then I realized that my emptiness was related to my unwillingness to access. And as soon as I began to access the Lord, as soon as I began to worship the Lord, the water was right there. The encouragement was right there didn't mean my circumstances changed, but it did, But all of that emptiness and whatever, that void, Christian's are like, oh, I'm going through a dry season. I'm like, why? Why? Why are you going through a dry season? Worship the Lord, right? Let the water flow. You don't have to be there. You don't have to live there. You don't have to live empty. It means you have access to wisdom. Open heavens means you have access to wisdom. If you look to yourself, you've lost. You're not smart enough. We're not, told by, we're not told as Christians to look to ourselves. We're told to look to him. But look to him how? The mind of Christ. Lord, what is your mind here? The Lord has a mind. If anyone lacks wisdom, let them ask of God. God has a flow of wisdom for his people. You have access to wisdom. You have access to revelation. Revelation is revealed knowledge. There are things that you know but you don't understand. But the Holy Spirit will reveal to you. He'll reveal it to you. He may tell you you're getting out of the situation, but you have no idea how you're getting out of the situation and he'll reveal to you the way. You have access to revelation. You have access to counsel and insight. You can have counsel. The Lord is the wonderful what? Counselor. He's the great physician and he's the wonderful counselor. And he says, "Come and see." Do you know him as the wonderful counselor? I'm not interested in people's counsel. I'm interested in the Lord's counsel. Yeah? You have to develop yourself in that. But the question isn't whether or not you're developed in that, the question, the, 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 the truth is, is that you have access to it, Christian. Do you understand this? Two of you? <laughs> Do you understand what's yours? You're not alone, so stop crying like a baby, like you're alone. Who told you you're alone? Oh, I'm so alone. <laughs> you're not alone. I'm so empty. <laughs> you're not empty. You have the whole fullness of the Holy Spirit. Let the well, let the water flow. Let the water overcome. Let that, let that happen. I don't know what I'm doing. No, you don't, but Jesus does. Access his wisdom. I can't see my way forward. Ask for revelation. <laughs> say, do you practice this all the time? I look myself in the mirror and I go <laughs> Give myself a couple of high karate's and I tell myself who I am. Who are you? Do you know who you are? Do you know what you are? Here's one of my favorites and I'm gonna stop right here, we'll pray. Circumstances start telling me all the things that are gonna happen and I go to the mirror or I go, I mean not literally the mirror, I go to wherever it may be and I tell myself, okay this is what's being said to me but this is what's not gonna happen. I'm not sure what's gonna happen but I can tell you what's not gonna happen. You will not make a decision out of fear. And you will not make any moves or do anything without the Lord's counsel. And if Jesus, yeah, okay, yeah, gotcha. You have to do this too, because it's coming your way. Monday's coming, people. So yes, we can agree on this. We should agree on this. But this, I tell myself what's not going to happen. I'm not making decisions in fear. Fear is always the wrong decision. The Holy Spirit doesn't speak fear, nor does he move in fear. So I know, no matter what decision I make, I know that fear is always the wrong one. So I won't make a decision in fear, I refuse. And then I'm gonna stand here and I'm gonna do what he says. And if he tells me to go, I'm gonna go. If it costs me whatever it costs me, if it costs me my life, I'm gonna do what he says. If he says go left, I go left. If he says go right, go right, I'm gonna be obedient. You have to tell yourself this. Life's gonna tell you what happens. The devil again, I don't know who this is for, there are people in this room that are manipulated by fear. He creates circumstances, floods you with emotion and speaks the voice of fear at you what is he trying to get you to do make a wrong decision he's trying to get you to move he'll create the lying circumstances flood you with emotion and he'll manipulate you with fear and what are you supposed to do well first of all i'm not deciding in fear second of all i'm going to worship the lord and i'm going to try to understand what's going on here lord will tell you god will be your fight he will deliver you he will deliver you. The sun will not strike me by name or the moon by night. Terror on this side, arrows on this side, death on that side, calamity on that side, but it will not come near me. Either that's true or that's a lie. You, you have no idea. Your life should be a testimony of deliverance of what God has brought you through. You need to remember the impossible situations that Jesus has brought you through. Impossible. I don't know if he's brought you through it. I could could line it up with my life. Overwhelming forces against me. Overwhelming odds. Everything telling me to do something except one voice telling me to do the opposite. Jesus isn't in the voice of the majority. Amen? Let's close right here. Amen. Come on. If you're here this morning and you're watching my live stream and you've never given your life to Jesus, what are you waiting for? This is not the offer you refuse. It's the greatest offer ever given to us. The Bible says that all of us are separated from God with sin. All have sinned. We all are, we've all missed it. All have fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible says the wages of that sin is death or eternal separation, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. The Bible says that if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and he is risen from the dead, you'll be saved. And he'll adopt you as a son and daughter. Say, well, what do I gotta do? You believe in your heart, not your head. Makes no sense to your head. You don't have to intellectually understand it. You just have to believe it. Belief comes from the heart. So we're gonna say a prayer and all you gotta do is open up your heart and let Jesus do what Jesus do. And we're gonna pray. Just say, dear Jesus... I believe that you are the savior and I need a savior. I may not understand this, but I choose to believe it. So I open my heart to you, Jesus, and I ask you to come inside. I ask you to heal me. I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to restore me. And I ask you to repurpose my life. All that I am, I give to you. And all that you are, I receive as mine. From this day forward i choose to follow you in jesus name amen amen all right Uh, we have a prayer team available if anybody needs prayer we have a wonderful prayer team that will pray for you please uh go for that uh life group sign-ups happening over there and then last but not least let me pray over you one more time may the lord bless you may the lord keep you may the lord cause his face to shine down upon you may the lord be gracious to you in every way and may he give you peace And may you forever live within his favor. In Jesus' name, God loves you. We love you. Have a wonderful week.